Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and my co-host is a modest introvert who enjoys well-scheduled alone time. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my co-host is a modest extrovert who enjoys well-scheduled social time. Professional growth involves ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturdays discussing education, research, and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Schlafly's Pumpkin Ale out of St. Louis, Missouri. This is a seasonal for our October recording. Last year, we had Tough Kitty Milk Stout to sort of go with the Halloween theme. This is a little more general. Pumpkin. It smells. The fruit's there. I can I can even catch it just in the, just in the aroma. Yeah, they uh, definitely are going to go all in. They advertise it as a pumpkin pie in a beer, so. So this month, we're going to start things off with uh, another guest. We have an adjunct professor from Carroll University who teaches English primarily to freshmen, and her scholarship focuses primarily on the connections between students and teachers in education, especially in higher education. Uh, so let us both welcome Dolores Greenewald. Hello. Hello. Yeah, you did a piece of writing on this topic of relationships, and so Lawrence and I both read your peer-reviewed publication in the Wisconsin English Journal called Creating Positive Relationships in the Classroom, Even When It Seems Impossible. And what'd you think? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I feel good about it. Um, You know, uh, relationship building is a really important part of classrooms and where it's neglected, students do not feel invited to participate. And that's something that uh, we definitely feel, I'm a high school instructor, so we definitely feel it at the secondary. I know that it's an important part of, you know, primary school education, but as class sizes get larger in the post-secondary environment and the sort of the specialization of the instructor increases the sort of knowledge gap between the students and the instructor itself. There, there comes these barriers with the, that, that relationship in the post-secondary level. So to see something specifically discussing relationship building at the post-secondary level was refreshing. Yeah. And so you, your article started off with a sort of like a personal perspective on it. And so can you tell us about just your personal experience with relationship building, either it be as a student or as an instructor, just uh, what's, who are you as a person in the education space? So I am, I'm a peon in the education space. (laughs) Um, But there's one thing that I love and it's one of the reasons that I love teaching is the connection between me and the students. And I feel that a lot of that connection can be lost, especially like you had said, when the knowledge gap becomes larger and larger. And I think that we have to get back to connecting to these students because it's really the reason that they come. They come to school. Of course, they want to learn. They have an end goal, right? The end goal is I'm going to graduate. And then they have this magical number of how much they think they're going to make at their first job. And it's our job to kind of sit back and say, okay, yes, but what are the steps to get there? And by doing that, by creating a relationship with your students and actually getting to know them and having that safe space in the classroom, they're more apt to keep coming back, keep learning, and actually want to make an investment in their education. A lot of the students that I work with at Brian and Stratton, um, it's difficult to build that connection because they, there's not a lot of people that have experienced that type of a population. The socioeconomic um, discrepancy, the race differences, 
the fact that a lot of these students have not experienced school where there is active learning. A lot of them have gone to high school, um, not, you know, have done poorly, don't have support at home, don't have that side where education is truly important. And I think that it's important to remember that when you are working with different types of populations because it's going to change the way that you communicate with them. What, uh, what are, even just broadly, maybe you don't have the numbers, but what are the demographics of um, Bryan and Stratton College? At the campus that I work at, it's mostly African-American, and then there is some Caucasian, and then obviously we have the Latino population and the Asian population. So it's a very diverse population, which I think is also a little bit different, especially if you're looking at D1 to D3 schools, where it's primarily... Caucasian students who yeah, come. Yeah, that's us. That's uh, at KU. We are primarily Caucasian. Yeah. So my population is different. I deal with a different type of population. I deal with a lot of students who grew up where education is not the main thing. A lot of them come in after they have been working for a little bit, or perhaps they've already started their family and they want to come back and get an education. But mind you, there's there's still young students, you know. Um, or they come from high schools that didn't necessarily prepare them for the rigor that college requires. How is that different or reflected in the demographics of the faculty? That's a good question. Our faculty, we actually have a pretty diverse faculty. We really, really do. Um, there's, it's primarily, it's primarily Caucasian, but we do have a lot of African American faculty as well and so that's demonstrated and I feel like that also helps with the students and the population because you know sometimes it's you see someone who looks familiar and we all as humans make assumptions and biases about people I think that it, they're well represented which is also nice although I still think that every faculty on every campus could be a lot more diverse than what it is how do you how do you feel like that's come to be, or what uh, what steps do you think administration or department heads are taking to even have the the better representation? I think a lot of it comes down to um, supply and demand, right? So the more people that graduate, the more people that we can hire. And Brian and Stratton, the nice thing about it is it's a career college, so we have a lot of faculty that still work in that field and then do a lot of adjunct work, which is nice because the connections are there and the networking is there. And so just having that built in, we bring in a lot of diverse people. Uh, yeah, that is very different from my experience. In, in the high school that I work in, I am uh, I am aware off the top of my head of two African-American instructors, and um, we have far more, uh, our, our demographic population is f of students is far more diverse than the, the population of our of our faculty. So how do you think that affects your teaching? Ooh, affects my teaching. That's yeah. good because, you know, I was, uh, I had kind of been thinking about how does that uh, affect the uh, experience of my students, but then how does that affect me personally in my classroom? That's awesome. Uh, well, my first thought is that um, when there are further the further the cultural gaps there are between the instructor and the teacher, the more work has to consciously be put in to closing that space to build that relationship. We are safe where we are familiar. So when we are in an unfamiliar place, we're not safe. And if we're not safe, then we're not going to be able to hit those higher order thinking uh, stresses. So uh, because this is the case, I have to work harder. It's, it's an obligation that I have to build those relationships. 
if what you're doing in the classroom is so far removed from what you experience else, elsewhere, then it makes it more artificial and it makes it less natural. So if I'm having more authentic interactions and more healthy interactions with people of different cultural backgrounds in my the other parts of my life, uh, even like faculty interactions, if, if all I ever do is interact with people with my background, then when I'm trying to build bridges with people with different backgrounds in my classroom, that's more strained. That's more that's more contrived because it's it's further removed from the rest of my experience and just necessarily I am less practiced at it. Versus if it's more integrated in the other parts of my life, I just I am used to working with people with different experiences. Then in my classroom, I am more used to working with people with different experiences. And so I think it's one of those things that you we mentioned synergies. I think in the next segment where it it interacts with each other and makes each other better. So when you do other pieces and more pieces are in place then they all become more effective uh, what's a what's your experience been well see for me i i'm a firstborn i'm first generation american my my primary language my first language was not english which is probably why i stutter a little bit while i talk but uh my primary english it was it was croatian i didn't realize i even lived in america until someone told me had no clue didn't i didn't understand i didn't realize that i was speaking a different language than anyone and the neighborhood that we grew up in was a very diverse neighborhood there was you know african-americans whites mexicans latinos i mean we we had everyone so my experience in general is different i feel than um like let's say my husband who grew up in a very nice suburb you know mainly white children meanwhile i'm listening to tupac driving down in a wagon you know bringing everyone in so that whole experience i think also makes it easier for me to connect to these students because i understand i have been there i have i understand not understanding a subject i understand being the odd man out i understand the need or the want to fit in more so than worry about the education right away and so i think a lot of that has also helped me kind of discover just how big that gap can be in the classroom right from instructor to student and i haven't lost a lot of that i i still am very close to my roots i see things in a different light and i think that that does kind of offer me a slight advantage which is nice uh, yeah, uh, in this article, you paint a picture of some beginning of the year activities that you specifically engage in for uh, some relationship building with your students. Can you uh, sort of for those that haven't read the article, can you paint us a picture of what those activities are like? When children or children, when students first come into the classroom and they sit down, I like to kind of take a look at everyone and see how they're responding. Is it automatically on their phone? Is it talking to the people next to them? Do they pick the seat that's closest to the board? Do they pick the seat all the way to the back? And once class starts, I do introductions, right? And we all have those, maybe not in high school, but in college, it's those awkward, like, Where, who are you and what do you want to do when you grow up type of uh, introductions. But I specifically let the room get silent after everyone is done doing those fake introductions, and I let, the, I let it sit there for a few minutes. And the reason that I do that is, is because eventually people are going to feel awkward sitting in complete silence, and then they start talking. Then there's the engagement, right? So all of a sudden these walls are slowly being let down because they begin to see what they have in common with the person next to them or the person across the row from them. And I think that it's an important piece because I can also sit in and listen and join them in these conversations. And all of a sudden I come in and, you know, we agree about something or I mention something that they've been talking about. And all of a sudden the wall starts 
slowly build, you know, tearing down even more, which I think is important. Well, one of the things that uh, I liked, I caught that in what you said there is uh, an underutilized and an underappreciated technical teaching skill, and that is wait time two, waiting after they have asked a question, and that you're saying, hey, we ask this question, we do these introductions, and then I just wait. I don't say anything. I let them stew in their own answers until the the environment changes. I'm actually working on wait time two in my class right now. So to, to hear this narrative where it's an important part of our introductions because it changes the way the classroom feels, that's a good reminder that I got to keep working on that. Uh, the piece that I picked out from your comments is time, right? Like I had to invest time both in the wait time, but then also in letting the conversations occur and mature, especially from an organic standpoint. They don't just happen even in a two or three or five or seven minute block. Like that takes, I have to commit to that as a priority. Uh, so what kind of payoff or what kind of benefits do you see in the rest of the class or the rest of the semester that help you justify that time investment early on? the relationship between the students themselves, right? So they come in and a lot of them don't necessarily have the support that um, you would normally see at a D1 or D2 school from family members, or perhaps they come in and they're very hesitant about attending school to begin with. But if you can connect with someone, then all of a sudden there's a little bit more of a reason to show up, right? Oh, I really like that person, or we were talking about this or that. I wonder what they're going to think about this if I come back in, or I wonder if they listen to the new album and maybe we could discuss that, you know? And I think that slowly it starts off, like you said, it's very organic and it's very small, but as the semester builds on, now all of a sudden we're not just talking about hobbies and interests, but we're talking about assignments. Um, You know, oh, I didn't have a chance to do this. What did you get for that? Or do you remember what she said we were going to talk about? And as they continue to build relationships with each other, then I come in and I start to build these relationships as well, talking to them, conversing with them, saying, okay, look, here's what we're going to do next week. This is why it's important to come in. And they feel a little bit more comfortable as well and, again, continue to show up. Because the biggest drop-off is around week four, at least in, at least in, in my world, in the college world. It's around week four we start to see the attendance kind of go down. And it's always a question of why, what happens, what's the difference, and a lot of it is, is I, I believe the newness has worn off, so now it's not so much fun anymore, but there's actual work. And if you don't have these relationships to kind of say, no, you need to continue to come to class or come with me or let's go grab lunch after or afterwards or whatever, you know, there's no reason for them to attend then. It's kind of like me and working out. <laughs> I need a motive. I, I'm not just going to do it. I want to know why I'm doing it or who else is going to be there. Can I ask a couple of uh, details about your uh, work scenario? Uh, like how often do your classes meet? How large are your class sizes? How many weeks do your classes meet? Things of that nature. So we run, um, Brian and Stratton, is, it's a traditional It's traditional college. Um, there are three semesters instead of two, though, so it's in a tri-semester. Classes meet, again, anywhere from one time to three times a week. It's more of the amount of credit hours versus anything, so three hours a week. Um, but otherwise than that, it's, it's pretty typical of any D1 or D2 school. Class size, class size averages from 18 to 24, okay. so it's max to 24. Better than mine. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> it's, 
Yeah. Okay, cool. What are you at right now? How many do you have in your classroom? Uh, I'm about 27, 27 student average. It's actually a little lower this year. I was hitting 30 in most of my classes last year. So I don't know. I got a good year. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Do you have any teacher aides? Uh, in uh, one of my classes, I have a support staff. Uh, yeah, I have a para in the room for one of those five class periods. I, I, I mean, that's that's hard. When I have 24 students in my classroom, it's very hard to keep track of everyone and see where everyone is. How do you how do you manage that? Well, uh, our situation is different in that I have contact with them every day. So, yeah. and and uh, I uh, have a two semester system. So uh, generally the kids that I have first semester, I also have second semester. So we really have to play a long game. And I actually do start my school year with uh, some strategies that you, uh, that paralleled some of the things that you did in your, um, in your writing. Uh, one of the things you did is you had them do some writing about themselves and, and, um, I also do that, and it doesn't. In addition to helping me uh, get to know them better, it also there's some secondary benefits of that. Sherman et al. This is from 2013. Wrote an article uh, called "Deflecting the Trajectory and Changing the Narrative: How Self-Affirmation Affects Academic Performance and Motivation Under Identity Threats." So big title that basically says that when students get an opportunity to write about what's important to them and why it's important they feel more valued and uh, are more uh, confident about their participation in that class. And that the strength of that value increases for students that have uh, possibly underprivileged or disenfranchised uh, demographics. So I, I do something like that at the beginning and I saw that you did something like that too. So I have to use that extra time that I have and start the relationship building game very, very early so that I can get as to as many of them as I possibly can. What about you, Ralph? I play the relationship game on easy mode because I'm, I am a later course in a program and our program relationships with the students is among the top priorities. So I know every student who walks into the room before the first day of class. So I'm fighting that battle long before I could possibly even start my content objectives. So it's not really a problem because <laughs> yeah. we know, like, it's just, it's a problem that we deal with early on and that we prioritize with uh, time outside of class for all the other things we do. So um, really, this is really just the result of me praising my boss because our director makes this a sufficiently high priority that I get to invest <laughs> time outside of class doing it. So. This is one that I'm really happy with, actually, with how we do. So I'm trying, I'm kind of, I'm thinking about uh, faculty, whether they be higher ed or secondary, um, but folks who have a content expertise and curricular objectives that are sufficiently complex that they feel compelled. Like, I don't know that I have a day or a week to contribute to other stuff with air quotes because I've got to get started talking about biology or English or social studies or geography or whatever it is. The question is something akin to how does how does this relationship building get woven into the later parts of your semester when we've got to work on composition or I'm sorry, I don't actually know is composition a thing you work on or is it literature? Or, 
Uh, so like, how do you weave relationships into the things that you're doing later in the semester when you are also working on content mastery, right? It's like, if this is only going to matter if it's, if it's a priority for the long haul, so how do you work it in after you stop devoting all of your attention to it? So I think I love this question because I feel like so many teachers have have that question, right? Why do why should I get to know my students if in 16 weeks they're just going to kind of move on? And I feel that the whole relationship aspect is something that's been truly brought up in the past couple of years and the need for it and yada, yada, yada. But how do you, you take a look at the assignments that you're going to do in the future? If you know that students are going to have to write a paper, right? Which for me, they're, they're going to have to write a paper. I tap into their interests. And within their interest, I, I ask them, okay, how does this relate to the workforce? Because in my world, in my classroom, I don't want to do assignments that don't have an end cause. I don't want to grade stuff that doesn't matter. And I, these students don't want to do stuff that doesn't matter. They, they truly have lives outside of class. So how do we create assignments or what kind of assignments can I create that will lead into the future? So if you are going into... You know, if everyone has to write a paper, think about what your major is and think about something that either interests you or think about something that can help you after you graduate. Let's take a look at how to properly write an email. Let's take a look at how to, heaven forbid, spell out all of your words instead of writing the letter C and the letter U. You know, let's take a look at how grammar can actually affect the way that your workforce looks at you when it comes to promotion. Let's take a look at how different types of subjects mean different types of things. And so I have a very um, broad, I, I let them choose what their topic is versus hammering into them, here's what you have to do, this is what you have to write about, and there's no room for anything else. So I'll change the assignments, I'll take a look at the prompts that we read, I try to find things that happen to be um, important right now, um, subjects that the world is discussing because it brings in a whole different type of a conversation. And then you really truly get, again, more of their opinions, more of their thoughts, and they begin to look at it in a different viewpoint as well. It, it sounds like the confluence of autonomy and authenticity is really the two things working together. So uh, that's going to be different semester over semester and for yeah. each group of students. But if you're really actively listening in those first couple of weeks, it, it can be done. And as a matter of fact, there's a there's a professor uh, from whom I'm taking a course who is working at the doctoral level and he doesn't finish his syllabus until the second week because he takes all that introductory information to define what the course is going to be. So I kind of take that as sort of a proof of concept that yeah. there's no such thing as too advanced to be relevant and to be applied to the experiences of your students. There's no such thing. So everybody can do it. I agree. The latest thing that I just actually on Thursday, I had my students read an article that was in the New York, either New York or New York Times. I'd have to look it up. But it was about Stone Mountain. If you're familiar with Stone Mountain. And so it's a tourist destination, but there's a carving within Stone Mountain, and it's of three Confederate soldiers, and they have their hats off, and they're basically saluting the Confederate flag. So the whole question is, is do we take down, you know, do we carve over the carving? Do we add to it? What do we do? Are we disrespecting a population? Are we offending people? Or by eliminating it, are we eliminating history? So I made them read the entire article, and then afterwards we had a discussion, and 
I incorporated it with the discussion that we had to do online on Blackboard because there is a, a requirement to do a discussion on Blackboard. But also, as they were typing these up, we talked about it as a class. And I wanted to hear what their thoughts were, but I wanted them to keep referring to the article. So we filled in that APA and the MLA standards. We talked about referring to information rather than just spitting off your opinion but we discussed how it's important to go back to the data that you're reading, go back to the research that you're looking at to either help your opinion or help define what you're trying to say. You can still say, yes, I'm offended or no, I'm not offended, but use, use something to back, back yourself up. Show us the research because that's what you're going to have to do in the workforce. You can't just say, these are my thoughts and I'm done. So that's what it looked like this semester. And I, gen I don't know, this might be too much of a, of a memory um taxing question, uh, but do you have an example perhaps of a past semester that predated this writing when you did maybe a different prompt for the same objective? Like, can you share any examples of how this or another assignment has been responsive to different current events uh, over the, like, as current events have come and gone? Um, the biggest thing that comes to mind is the last presidential election. So that, that's always fun because you get lots of opinions. But when you have to have them, again, go back to a source, have them figure out, you know, is this source actually creating strong arguments or are they more fallacies? Then you bring in that whole aspect of, okay, let's, let's learn about fallacies. Let's take a look because, as we all know, political advertisements, it's all one big fallacy. So let's take a look at what everyone is actually saying and then let's write it up in a paper. Let's talk about it as a discussion. Let's put in those sources, go back to it and say, okay, yes, this is why I agree, this is why I don't agree, or this is what they're doing right, or this is what they're doing wrong. Sure. Great. Uh, thank you so much for your time. This has been a very enjoyable discussion. Uh, so you can find, we've got both of your papers linked on the show notes for anybody who wants to get a closer look at your comments. But again, uh, this has been wonderful. So thank you and keep excelling up there, our neighbor to the north. Uh, thank you so much, Dolores Greenewald. Have a good day. Thank you. Know your students. So for our second segment, we're going to be looking at a data report that actually got shared with me on social media, or I came across it from a colleague who is also a member of our professional organization, the Kansas Association of Biology Teachers. And uh, Stephanie, she tweeted this out and was just commenting on the importance of engaging with this data. And you know what? She was right. It is important that we engage with this data. So thank you, Stephanie, uh, for bringing this to our attention. And I, uh, we need to talk about it. This report is called The Opportunity Myth. Uh, this is from the New Teacher Project. Uh, they took observations from five different schools, and these schools were varying in their targets. They uh, looked at lessons, they collected student work. Um, it was actually quite robust. I think you've got the numbers right over there. Give those to me. Yeah, they partnered with five different diverse school districts. They observed nearly 1,000 lessons. They analyzed 20,000 student work samples and collected nearly 30,000 real-time student surveys. So they looked at a lot of stuff. Uh, and so there's going to be, we're not going to be able to review every single finding of every single thing because they did a lot of analysis. But some of the things that really called to me, 94% of the students 
declared that they wanted to go to college as part of their future aspirations. Not as an endpoint, I should go to college, but because I want to do X, I should go to college. And uh, I thought that was pretty uh, interesting. But uh, something that I didn't like was that out of uh, 1,000 lessons, 88% of the time students complied with the lesson uh, requests. 71% of the time those students were successful on those lessons earning an A or B, but only 17% of those times did those students exhibit grade level mastery either during the course of that lesson or as a consequence of that lesson. So what does that what does that mean, right? So that's that's a little technical. What what does that what does that mean? That means we are not asking them or expecting them to reach mastery as part of our industrial norms. In our profession, uh, when 88% of the students comply, they do what we ask and they succeed, they still have not achieved the learning expectations that have been set forth as appropriate for their grade level. And so that, that, that feels like that stands in contradiction to uh, a narrative that suggests that in what you might air quotes difficult classrooms, I'm walking in with students who are unlikely to comply or unlikely to be um, involved. Yeah, engaged. And so a teacher might be inclined to give them something simpler so something they can actually do. But that's not what the data found. The data found that they're willing to do a lot of the things that they encounter. Uh, yeah, this is actually what the opportunity myth is about. We promise a return on compliance. If you come to school and do what we say, you're going to be pre prepared to be successful in the future, whether that's at your job or in college or whatever career goals you happen to have. But compliance from students was actually the most common observed consequence in the study every and then every despite that every year the gap increases between uh, the student the support the students are given and their their own defined goals so uh, that's complicated there's a couple of graphs in the report that really illustrate what's going on they first looked at classrooms that are primarily composed of students of color and said at what rate do they succeed on grade level appropriate work? Then they asked the same question for classrooms composed mostly of white students. What, how often do they succeed on grade level appropriate work? And they found not a lot of difference. I, those graphs are pretty comparable. So doesn't really matter the student, generally speaking, everybody is capable of being successful on grade appropriate work. They then said, what percentage of classrooms composed primarily of students of color never get to see grade appropriate work in their day-to-day -day experience? Never, never. What percentage of them zero times do they see grade appropriate work compared to classrooms composed primarily of students who are white? What percentage of them never see grade appropriate work? And that difference is shocking. That difference is enormous. 38% of the classrooms they observed composed primarily of students of color never see grade appropriate work compared to only 12% of classrooms composed primarily of students who are white. That is an enormous difference and it is not derived from their difference in ability. That's distressing. 
Yes, they gave an example of what this kind of disparity would look like. There was one uh, group of eighth grade students that were given a um, assignment where they were to read a memoir of one of the uh, uh, Little Rock Nine involved in the uh, integration of um, uh, integration of race in public schools. And then they had to construct an argument uh, relevant to what they were reading, whereas another eighth grade classroom was given a passage and then asked to fill in the vowels of certain key words from that passage. One of those is considerably more cognitively engaging uh, and uh, promotion, promoting uh, development of these literacy skills, whereas the other one is essentially half of a crossword puzzle. Uh, and if if forty percent of our kids are getting that half of a crossword puzzle all the time, forty percent of the uh, underprivileged kids are getting that all the time, that is not based on their abilities to do work, which is a sub theme of this entire article. The consequences of these kids are shaped by the teacher decisions and the decisions of administration and districts. They are I, I'm gonna use the word victimized by poor teacher decisions. This makes me think of an excerpt from a book that a colleague of mine shared. The book's title is Multiplication is for White People. And there's a narrative in that book that describes uh, an observer going around in a classroom for, um, for older high school uh, students, so students who have come back or for whatever reason they are not of typical high school age. And this observer was, make, was working around the classroom, uh, it was a remedial classroom, and there was a student who refused to let the observer see what he was working on. Uh, despite pleas, despite requests, said, no, you may not see what I'm working on. But then as the observer was walking around the classroom elsewhere, uh, the student reduced his guard of his work, and so the observer could see from afar what was going on. And this elder high school student, older than typical age high school student, was being asked to color a turkey with just markers. And he was well aware that that was infantile, that that was ridiculous, that he was not developing the job skills, the life skills, the, the cognitive skills necessary to succeed in what he was going to be doing for a living. He knew that that was inappropriate. It was embarrassing to him. Uh, and so he didn't want other people to see that this is what he was being asked to do. The teacher decided that the best use of that student's time that day was to color a turkey. And I would like to know what cognitive skills were being developed. And if you can't answer that question, that was bad use of class time. The report essentially uh, prioritized four components that contribute to this achievement gap or this opportunity myth, and four things that are required for a consistently productive classroom experience. And those four things were great appropriate assignments, which we've addressed, but also strong instruction, deep engagement, and uh, high expectations. And they also mentioned that there were synergies between them and that in classrooms that showed advancement in one of those, there were secondary effects in the others. So let's break those down. We can talk about how bad the situation is, but this is about shoulds. How do we fix it? Mm -hmm. So what does strong instruction look like as one of these goals that we should have? This is a topic that uh, a math education researcher, Dr. Bowler, does a lot of writing on. And really the answer is coming up with prompts and with phenomena and with experiences 
that are accessible to a broad range of life experiences and a broad range of abilities. So something that, uh, in her words, has a low floor, high ceiling. So if there's something where I'm gonna plop down a, a writing prompt, but it is using vocabulary that is so complex and so specific that unless a student already has the mastery I'm trying to develop, they can't even start, like they can do nothing productive. That assignment's really inaccessible to the students who maybe are in the greatest need of further development. And so finding a way to create a prompt that engages students at multiple developmental levels simultaneously, something that has layers of complexity that are accessible for students who are ready for those additional challenges, but is also sufficiently accessible that students who need more scaffolding and more support can begin to do productive work immediately. So a broad range of accessibility in your activity and lesson and prompt designs I think is essential. Of 900 observed lessons, 295 did offer grade level content. So about 300 of the 900 measured were, uh, you know, good, good, challenging, appropriate challenge for the kids. But only 74 of those actually asked the kids to engage in sense making. And so we've talked, we've discussed sense making in this podcast before, and that it's about students struggling with content. And that yes, you can assign them a task that is beyond their capabilities, but can you also accompany with that? experiences that support their growth to develop those abilities? Can you break the tasks down so that they can achieve small successes to build them to a larger success? Only 74 of 900 lessons observed actually asked them to engage in sense-making. Well, and I think that's the actual takeaway. That's the actual prompt for change. Is I don't think there I don't think there are very many teachers out there who don't want their students to get better. I don't think that that's right. what's going on. So instead, what happens is I have a task that I think is grade level appropriate, but it is not accessible to some of my students. And so, rather than trying to accommodate or scaffold them, it's just saying, well, if they can't do this, I need them to be doing something. So here, do this thing that is not cognitively valuable, but it keeps them busy. They are able to comply, so they are not causing problems, and that's that's really where it gets left, instead of trying to find something that's more broadly accessible to all of those students. So I think that's actually one of the greatest shoulds coming out of this report, is when you see students who are struggling, the goal is not to remove that struggle from them. Or when you see students who are failing to get started, the goal is not to remove them from those expectations. The goal is to find some way to get them started. Absolutely. Make better mistakes. Okay, so for our third segment, we're actually turning our attention back to the newsreel. So one of the most commonly discussed articles in EdWeek uh, right now is mispronouncing student names, a slight that can cut deep. And so this is a, a news article that's talking about um, how do we as teachers navigate an inability to immediately and correctly pronounce student names, especially students who may come from cult uh, cultures different from our own. And so uh, just to frame it, there's a student quote here that I think uh, really exemplifies the problem. What you do when you're in front of a child and struggling with their name. 
Is it framed as my inability to say someone's name, or is it framed as the student doing something to make your life more difficult? And I think that's really the question is how do you deal with, and we, we encounter this on the show pretty regularly, how do we deal with seeing names that we can't immediately pronounce correctly? Well, wow, I didn't actually um I didn't actually get that how to deal with this is what it's about. I didn't I didn't get offered any strategies about how to deal with this. What I got offered is a philosophical argument as to why it should be dealt with. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of discussions about the consequences of mispronouncing names. I got a way to philosophically orient teachers as to why pronouncing their names correctly is important, even when they are difficult, especially when they are difficult. Uh, those They do have costs. Those mispronunciations have costs. And ultimately, it comes down to two things. How you approach their name isn't a proxy for the student, but is a direct act regarding how you are approaching the student. In a time when identity psychology and identity politics is blossoming, we have here an article we go to the core identity of an individual. Uh, their name is one of the first masteries we develop as humans, is, is recognizing our own name. And so when you deny a student by opting out of saying their name correctly, you are communicating to that student that you are not gonna participate in their self-identity. Mispronouncing names kills relationships and as we have said many times at this point in the show that relationships with students matter so what are you communicating when you don't try to say their name correctly or you laugh it off you're saying that their identity is not important mm -hmm. Well, I, th I think there was a should in the article that I think was uh, threaded throughout the entire emotional narrative. Uh, and I agree, it was primarily emotional. But throughout this whole thing, it was about taking the time to insist that you do it correctly. So I might struggle to say a student's name, and there's only so much I can do about that. But if I insist on being corrected, and if I make genuine attempts and deliberate attempts to get it right until I get it right, and then to consistently get it right for the rest of the school year, that is what it takes to insist. And as you have mentioned, I am declaring, I care about seeing you for who you are. I want to understand who you are. And despite the fact that it's a little bit unfamiliar to me, it is just as important as saying anybody else's name correctly. So I'm going to spend the time and the energy to get it right because you are just as important as everybody else in my classroom. This. Uh, illustration of the importance of saying their name right has two, at least off the top of my head, two significant benefits. One, the one that you just addressed, acknowledging their identity. And two, um, our students need to have the idea that growth requires struggle modeled. I have an opportunity to say, I need to practice saying your name. I'm going to deliberately take time out of every day to look at you, address you, and say, this is your name. Am I doing it right? How can I improve? At the mastery level of their name, don't give me a shortcut. Don't give me an Americanization. Don't give me a let, let me get off the hook and slur some of the syllables. I want to say your name as you say your name. How should I do that? And it may take me time. I had a student and her, I'll say her name, Vivian Nganga, 
I may still not be saying her name correctly because we worked on that consistently through April. We worked on it consistently through April for me to say her name. And I was like, you've got to correct me when I'm wrong. And sometimes we would have these like five minute gaps in the, in this, in the classroom where it's just me listening to her and trying to say that name. And some people say, well, that's five minutes of lost instruction time, but it is five minutes of built relationship time. And it's not just between me and Vivian. It's between me and the other students in the classroom who see me struggling because my students are important. That translates to them as well. This is better with all of you. How was the beer? It was very pumpkin-y, uh, and it's a little lighter than it color than its color suggests. Um, so this is something if you like an ale, I think this is a pretty good one, despite the fact that I did not get much joy from it. I liked it, and I you know there are plenty of ales I don't like, so it's a uh, I liked it. It's a nice candy pumpkin beer. It's got this yeah. cinnamon flavor. We've got some little notes of red hots in it, and. Uh, I really did enjoy this seasonal festive. It's like, it, it tastes like the happy colors of the leaves. Yeah, that cinnamon, that red hot cinnamon is the flavor that I didn't ever identify for myself. But you just said it, and yep, like there it is. It's, <laughs> that, is a, that is an important, so like if pumpkin bread had a little bit of spicy cinnamon to it, and then it was liquid, that's what this beer would be. Remember that you can always find all of our citations and all of our references on twopintplc.com. Remember to subscribe so you can get each episode released on the 12th of every month. And remember, send us a comment or a tweet or an email if you have a story you want to talk about or if you have a question that you want us to consider because we want to be engaged with all of you. We will see you next month. Remember to discuss research and struggle well. <laughs>